0: Welcome to part one of this Agenda podcast brought to you by OXERA. We're reporting from a discussion in Brussels hosted by the European Contact Group, attended by over 50 people, where the topic is the quality of corporate reporting. Hi and welcome to the Agenda Podcast. My name is Russell Goldsmith and we're recording this episode at an event hosted by the European Contact Group, who recently responded to the European Commission's consultation on the quality of corporate reporting. Today we're going to find out more about the findings in the response and the possible policy implications. To kick things off, I'm quickly catching up with Maurizio Donvito, a partner at PwC and the chairman of the European Contact Group. Maurizio, why did the ECG uh, commission this research?
1: Well, ECG is a group in the sixth largest consulting uh, network uh, in in Europe, and uh, we are quite active in contributing to the regulatory uh, initiatives at at the European level. We therefore responded in 2022 to the consultation launched by the European Commission on Corporate Reporting, and the commission was asking for a call for evidence. We discovered that the evidence were numerous in relation to the two pillars of audit and oversight, but very, very limited on the cornerstone pillar of corporate reporting, which is governance. And therefore, we tried with this initiative to fill the gap in terms of uh, available evidence at the European level.
0: Are there any specific themes you're expecting to come from the roundtable today?
1: Well, the lack of evidence on the first pillar gave us an indication that no much debate uh, has taken place in Europe on this point. And therefore, we hope that with the roundtable with the OXERA report and research findings, and at uh, the roundtable, we can initiate some sort of uh, discussion and socialization of the results in order to enact a debate on the point, because I think is what is needed by all the stakeholders, a regulator, a thorough understanding of the needs, a thorough understanding of the problems to have a, a very constructive uh, solution to the issue.
0: So I'm now joined by Andrew Hobbs, who is the ECG lead partner for EY and EMEIA policy leader at Ernst & Young. Andrew is about to host the first of our two panel sessions where the focus will be on the findings of the Auxera report, which showed the benefits of enhancing and harmonising management and boards' responsibilities for corporate reporting across the EU. Andrew, it will be interesting to see how regulators, industry and academia representatives will engage during the panel and bring their complementary Views on the findings of the report. What are you hoping to come out of the discussion today?
2: I think what I'm hoping that will come out is a general consensus that doing something in this area, as far as driving some consistency and increased focus on the importance of strong governance to high quality reporting, will come out. I mean, obviously, there are going to be some differences of views. I'm also hoping that people will start to see that there's a different way of looking at regulation in terms of the wider benefits that it might bring beyond the costs that are incurred in simply complying.
0: And the um, the OXERA study examines the potential benefits for European companies and investors uh, following a European corporate governance reform. What are your key takeaways from this study?
2: Well, the thing that it, it really brings home to me, and I'm not An investment expert or an academic or an economist but is this benefit that you can bring to companies across Europe by applying a blanket policy in this area which will lead to a discount in terms of the cost of equity that wouldn't otherwise accrue if you do it yourself as a company so in other words investors look across the whole market they don't have to engage with individual companies on the strength of their governance they can take comfort from the fact that there are obligations on boards and management to get this right and the discount to the cost of equity applies as a result of that blanket application. I'm sure Luis will be able to explain that much more eloquently, but that's that's the big takeaway for me.
0: That's great. Well, um, Andrew, good luck with your uh, session today. Thanks very much. So I'm just catching up with uh, Dr. Luis Correa de Silva, partner and chair at OXERA. Luis, what's the one thing you'd like people to take away from today?
3: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ross. Uh, the, the really key thing, and it might seem obvious to a lot of people, It might not. That is that good corporate reporting is economically very meaningful. It matters to investors. It matters to society. And therefore, to the extent that we have a lot of inconsistencies across European Union members around the uh, standards of of corporate reporting, that will matter for the single market in going forward.
0: Now before we hear Andrew's panel, I've been wandering around the networking area to gather the thoughts of some of the attendees here today on what they are looking forward to from the session.
4: My name is Jakobien van den Hurk. I'm Director of Public Affairs at PwC. So what I'm looking for is um, feedback from the panelists and from the participants more widely on what they think of the findings of this report, which the uh, European Contact Group commissioned to uh, support the Commission on the first pillar of the three pillars that underpin the quality of corporate reporting, the whole ecosystem of corporate reporting. It's not just companies, it's also auditors, it's also supervision but uh, the corporate governance side was a little, we didn't have a lot of evidence of what would work to improve that part of the ecosystem. My name is Christiane
5: Cunningham, I'm from Deloitte. I'm a director
4: of the EU Policy Centre here in Brussels.
5: I'm really looking forward to hearing that kind of broad perspective from many different stakeholders, how they view the, 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 the results of the OXERA of the report.
0: And, and on that uh, topic, what did you find most compelling from OXERA's findings?
5: I think for me, the most compelling finding was just the impact on the cost of equity of increasing um, management accountability for corporate reporting, and I I found that quite striking. Intuitively, you would expect it, but I thought it was really interesting to see the data.
0: Okay, well, time to hear the first of our two panel discussions. Uh, Maurizio is going to firstly introduce things, and then we'll hear from Luis before handing over to Andrew to moderate the rest of the session.
1: Welcome to the Roundtable. I'm Maurizio Dovito. I'm the European Contact Group Chairman. And on behalf of the ECG leads, I wish to welcome to the Roundtable today. The ECG is an informal grouping of six large accounting networks. We collectively employ more than 290,000 people in the EU. Our mission is to contribute constructively to the EU legislation and policy debate. And uh, the OXERA report we will be talking today was commissioned by DCG in the effort of collect evidence about the first uh, pillar, which we consider the cornerstone of the three pillars that uh, underpin the quality of the corporate reporting ecosystem in uh, Europe. Digifisma has, uh, in, the, in, the, in the last few months, indicated that uh, such evidence was missing and we diligently work to fill the gap. We have uh, two panels today. Uh, After Oxera will have presented their research to us, the first panel will discuss the findings, whereas the second panel will discuss policy options. I regret not being able to be uh, with you today, but uh, I'm sure I'm leaving you in capable hands of Andrew and Pablo to steer the two panel discussions. So I think uh, having said that, I think I leave the floor to Luis uh, from OXERA that is going to give us a brief introduction of uh, the the research and, and the report itself.
3: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Luis Correa de Silva, partner at TalkZero. I I must say, when we were asked about how would you think about this question, the first thing we thought about was that there would be so much about it that most of it is going to be about us doing secondary research and gathering the existing evidence. Well, we couldn't be more wrong about it. There is very little about this this question, and, and hence, Really looking forward to today's discussion about it and, and and we hope that our report is is a, is a good contribution to the debate. It is what, what it is, a contribution to the debate and to bring evidence to inform the decisions that uh, you will have to, to make one day. So it really is that spirit and could I just say that obviously it was commissioned by ECG but this is Auxera's report. This is our report, this is our views, nobody else's views to the extent that uh, they also match other people's views. Uh, they will know uh, that it's their views, but but this is our views. This is this is what we we found, what the data told us, and how we wrote about what the data told us. So I've got here uh, uh, next to me um, uh, Ryan Williams. Ryan Williams, who is professor at Paris Dauphine, and uh, Ryan was a co-author of mine while he was still at Oxera uh, when we uh, he, he did the, the whole report with us. And, and then he left Oxford uh, after that, but, but he was one of the co-authors. So he's, he's here with me today and he will bring quite a lot of the academic perspective and the research perspective into these. whereas I'll stay more perhaps at the, the higher level c- kind of questions. I wanted to start by making perhaps a series of points around what might be quite an obvious set of points, but I wanted to, to start with the context. And why we, wanted to be part of the discussion. And that is that good corporate reporting is economically very meaningful. And that's quite a quite an obvious point, but but let's just spend a few moments reflecting on what it means. The most traditional way of thinking about it is that good corporate reporting has implications for capital market efficiency, it reduces the cost of capital, it incentivizes investment, it leads to better corporate valuations. All of those things. That's the sort of the typical kind of resource allocation, capital market efficiency argument, set of arguments that one reads. <laughs> but I think there is perhaps a different way of positioning this and, and perhaps adds a, a dimension which I think is much more, in my view, important for the future. And that is that good corporate reporting it creates positive externalities in the sense that it aligns the incentives of investors with other stakeholders. And what I mean by that is that, that good corporate reporting on financials of, of a corporation seen in the context of, and examined in the context of other non-financial information, hand in hand, good reporting on, on both of them, is really important for us to understand what is a company that generates profit as a result of improving not just on financials but also on other societal benefits relative to another company that generates profits but by not making improvements to uh, other parts of society so take an example I've got two companies that generate each one of them two large corporations 1 billion euro of profit a year one improves on natural capital it provides for maintenance of, of natural capital in, uh, instead of degradation of natural capital. It improves on climate change, improves on net zero objectives. It improves on, on community ob- objectives, social capital, etc. But the other generates the same 1 billion euro profit, but n- doesn't do any of those. At best, it maintains what's uh, around in, 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 in those other ca- capitals. And I think the difference between these two companies that perhaps, as of today, is not well understood one day it will be a huge source of differential value and competitive advantage of the fund that does generate profit, but by uh, also creating societal benefits. So I think this is really important as the context for what we're talking about here. We're not talking about here as just a, another change in legislation. We're talking about here, what is right at the heart of what a company does? A company is the source of wealth in society, and therefore as being trustful of what a corporation generates for its investors and other stakeholders is absolutely essential for our de- development in society. So that context is really important, and and the, the study, I'll I'll go through some of the findings. We did a qualitative assessment and we did a quantitative assessment, and we we had a limited time available. If we could, we would have spent, and uh, the two of us in particular, we have our academic passion, and we would have spent much more time on this. And we would spend much more time on this in going forward. But what we try to do is, in the limited amount of time, to get a, a bunch of new evidence and, and ask ourselves, what is that evidence telling us? So the first thing we did was just look at reforms, uh, countries where there have been reforms, corporate government reforms in relation to corporate reporting. We looked at US, we looked at Italy, we looked at South Africa, we looked at Japan. All of those reforms share a uh, similar uh, sort of attributes around focus on management and or board attestation of, of, of corporate reporting, as well as, as robust, effective control systems around creating, maintaining and testing. So, all of those reforms have that th- those focus uh, around those two broad um, uh, themes. And... Why? Because, obviously, this is right at the heart of what a corporation does. So we want to know how what a corporation does to investors in society is represented truthfully. So that's why these reforms take place. So we did that. We also did a holistic summary of the current status of corporate governance frameworks across European Union countries. And I must say, when we started this, we thought it would be quite easy to, to get evidence on this. It was a huge task, a huge task. And, and I, I, I can't remember the expression, Ryan, that you used about how internally we talked
6: about what this involved, was it like? So I described it as going fishing without knowing what kind of fish you're fishing for or where the fish are. No, okay. It was a bit of a there you are. treasure hunt That's a treasure hunt <laughs> and, and, and because, because there, there
3: is no single source of, of all This evidence, uh, a bit is here A bit is there, some is secondary Sources, some is three interviews we had to, to Collect, etc. It was a huge task And, and thanks to everyone who, Which spoke to and helped us With this, and we tried to condense It, what looks as sort of four or five pages Of condensed evidence, it's a Huge amount of work that has gone into that But what it shows is that it varies considerably across European Union uh, countries. It varies, and I'll go through some of those findings. And therefore, to the extent that good corporate reporting is economically meaningful, as I've argued before, the fact that we have Inconsistent standards, inconsistent perspectives on these across countries is not contributing to the objectives of the single market. I, I think uh, I would argue that very forcefully. To the extent we've got more consistency around that, it will contribute to the development of the single market. It will contribute, in my view, to economically meaningful outcomes. Sure. Then we also did quite a lot of quantitative analysis and it's impossible to go through all that. We put a lot of stuff in appendix because if you had had to go through 40 pages of econometrics and all that stuff, you would have been quite bored. And quite a lot of people who read it uh, were bored uh, by those, those. So we put a lot of stuff in appendix. We looked at the impact of corporate governance reforms in the US and Italy. We didn't do that for South Africa and Japan, because the, they are more recent reforms. And therefore, the post-reform data that we were able to collect wouldn't have allowed sufficiently long time frame to look at the impact on, on metrics. And we looked at metrics of capital market efficiency, whether it reduces investor risk, whether it improves uh, financial reporting through uh, a metric of accrual quality and corporate governance rating. And what we found from from the, those various data analyses is that we found that the post-reform, there are improvements on, on those three metrics. Okay? So I'll, I'll now go through that in, in, in a bit more detail in a moment. We've complemented that with a quasi-natural experiment. This is your words, Ryan, so you have a very beautiful way of explaining it. I will not do it uh, as beautifully, but it's it's as simple as we wanted to compare what happens pre versus post-reform for a bunch of companies that were subject to the reform relative to a bunch of companies that were not subject to the reform. And we wanted to look at what happens to those two uh, groups of companies pre and post reform. So, and I'll, I'll go through those results in a moment, but just to say that we did that for the for Italy companies, part of the StockX 600 versus the other constituents of the StockX uh, 600, but non-Italian not subject to the reform in 2005, the post-Palmolite Savings and Law reform in 2005. And we looked at it and we find that there are reductions in the investor risk. So I'll go through this very quickly as the patchwork of, uh, as we describe the patchwork of guidance coming from legislation, securities regulators, corporate governance codes and central banks, so if you look at, for example, the countries where uh, it's explicitly required to a signature by management board or 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 board of, of directors, whether board of directors or supervisory boards, certain countries got su- supervisory boards, and what it shows here is a very varied picture. Uh, in certain countries, yes, management is required to attest the accuracy of the account. Some others, it's not. The board. The the picture around the board is different as well, but varied across countries. So that's the, the, the first one. If we move on to the legal status of corporate governance frameworks, and this is whether some are mandatory, some are non-mandatory, The mon- non-mandatory is the soft, as you can see in green there, certain countries it's not mandatory, some others in black. Only a few; it is mandatory, and then and then we've got a hybrid with elements of both mandatory and non-mandatory. The corporate governance framework. If we move on to then whether there is requirement for a discrete corporate governance report, here the picture is a bit more homogeneous, but still a few countries that. Uh, are exceptions. And then the final one is around requirement on internal controls, whether that requirement is just around monitoring or is also required to, to be reported. And we show here that you know, In green, for example, there is no requirement for internal controls, or it is ill-defined. In certain countries, it is just monitoring, and in certain countries, it is monitoring and it has to be reported. So, really a patchwork of, of different sources, codes, uh, and uh, that lead to a very varied picture across Europe. And I welcome the consultation from the GIFIS. <laughs> the quantitative analysis, and very, very quickly I want to go through that to give time for discussion. For But as I said, we wanted to look at the impact of corporate governance reforms on metrics, on a certain uh, group of metrics. There there are many other metrics we could have used and we chose those. I perfectly uh, understand that if if we had more time, we would have tested a whole bunch of other things. But we could have... In a sort of impact assessment type analysis, which we, are, we a lot of the times we do, we could have created a model and trying to think a little bit about what what would be the benefit in going forward. In sort of in a in a kind of in a modelling kind of way, we decided not to go for that because because the the uncertainty around such type of modelling would have been just too judgmental, too judgmental. And instead, what we did was actually let's take some real data from what happens in different countries, use that data and see what happens those countries around with that data. And as a way of indicating the potential impact of similar sort of of corporate governance reforms proposed by the FISMA. The three hypotheses we tested was whether better corporate reporting those reforms in those countries led to reduction in investor risk, led to improvement in reporting quality, and whether it strengthened corporate governance. The metrics here, investor risk, we use the cost of equity as a, as a proxy variable, and Cost of equity, the required rate of return by equity investors to invest in a particular security. We use the capital asset pricing model. Now, in my organization, we, we spend a huge amount of time computing capital asset pricing model across all sectors, across all securities. And I am very familiar with the uncertainties of a capital asset pricing model as an asset pricing model. I completely agree with that. It is, however, in our view, the least bad asset pricing model one can use hence why we use the capital asset pricing model the reporting quality we we use abnormal accruals as a a proxy for if if it is a high abnormal accrual that leads to poor reporting corporate governance we use the the Paul Gompers et al G index it's only available for the US so we only did this analysis for the US if I look at one result of the analysis, and we, we'll have time to, if, if you want to talk, discuss the other analysis we've done, this is the, the quasi-natural experiment. As I explained, what, what we did was we took the constituents of the stock X 600 index and we at all the companies with we compared the non-italian companies with the italian companies what happens to the cost of equity over time on an annual basis What ha- what is the cost of equity for those two samples pre and post reform in italy in 2005 but basically we observe that over time the cost of equity of Both samples, the non Italian and Italian, the cost of equity is measuring the cost of the capital, using the capital asset pricing model, as I said, over time reduces. Okay, there's a reduction in over time in the cost of equity. The question is whether the post reform, the Italian companies, constituents of the stock X600 index, that decline is bigger than the decline of the non-Italian firms? That's the question that we want to understand. As a way of saying, well, here is a quasi-natural experiment. Some companies were subject to the, to the reforms. Some others were not subject to the reforms. Let's look at the time of the reform. Are the changes in the cost of equity of those two firms different and the hypothesis we we conjecture was the Italian firms as a result of the, the reform lead to a, a, a bigger reduction in the cost of equity than the non-Italian firms. So if I just, uh, and a different way of expressing the results uh, uh, of, of this analysis in the next slide. And on the left hand side, before 2005, you've got the, the difference between the two samples. On the right hand side, you've got the difference between the two samples. And you can see that post 2005, the reduction, the decline in the cost of equity of the Italian firms in the stock X, six hundred in X, the constituents of it, the Italian firms declined by more than the, the, the non Italian firms. Now, this is what the data is telling you. Okay? And and in the first five years, six years, the decline is smaller than in, in, in the subsequent years. So there's a sort of almost like a, a progression here, but on average is around about the differences between these two samples in the reduction in the cost of is around about 90 to 100 basis points. That's what the data tell us. So what we get, if you if you look at some of the uh, numbers, the ranges between 50 basis points and 150 basis points, and consistent with the hypothesis that the Italian reforms had a positive effect on, on investor risk, we obviously wanted to test this econometrically, not just do this very simple sort of difference in difference analysis. So we run fixed effect models, we run various econometric models to test the robustness. The coefficient on those regressions leads to a very similar economic kind of impact to the one that just by looking at visually at the evidence but we we tested with lots of control variables so that we were not picking up other factors that could have led to the result now we did as i said we did this analysis for u.s companies we did this analysis just for uh, a for all the listed uh, italian companies as well we report all that in the study the results are consistent that there is an improvement in a reduction in investor risk, there is an improvement in financial reporting as a result of looking at the accruals quality. And for the US, there is an improvement in corporate governance. So to conclude, the historical reforms in other countries that we've looked at have got a strong focus on personal accountability for accurate reporting, financial reporting and monitoring, testing, and reporting of internal uh, control structures. In the current situation in the European Union, is there There are many inconsistencies across European Union countries. The empirical analysis we looked at established, in, in our view, a causality between the reforms and impact on cost of equity and, and uh, uh, corporate governance and, and financial reporting. It reaffirms previous studies. So one of the things we did was to look at previous studies. There isn't a lot. Certainly there's nothing in in Europe, but we looked at the U.S. And we found that in the U.S., there are studies that have come up with even bigger estimates of, of reduction in the cost of equity. Than the ones we report here, but it's the US. So we want to stay here in Europe. I'm very pleased uh, to have the opportunity to be here in Brussels and discuss Europe rather than the US. So thank you very much. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Thank
7: you,
2: Luis. My name's Andrew Hobbs. I'm the. Uh public policy leader for EMEA, for EY, and I'm delighted to host this first panel for you. Um, I'm in awe of the quality of the uh, panel I have next to me, so let me introduce you to them briefly. We're going to discuss reflections on what Luis just talked through. So uh, going from my left to my right, I'm delighted to welcome Gabriela Figueroa who is currently the chair of of the International Ethics and Standards Board of Accountants, uh, but is also previously in in another life was an eminent uh, securities regulator. To her left is Carol Anou, who's the Chief Executive Officer of SEPs, the Centre for uh, European Policy Studies. To his left is an, Professor Nicole ratzinger sackel from the University of Hamburg. And to her left, we've got Luis. And then online, so delighted also to welcome online Chiara Mosca, who's a commissioner with Consol and also an academic, as you'll hear later. Nicole, you're an academic, so I'm sure, you know, I've, I've talked to a, a number of academics about this report and they always have an opinion. What's your view on what Oxier has done? And what, what do you like about the report? Yes,
7: yeah, so first of all, I like the report. There are in particular two things or two aspects I like. First, um, the very detailed descriptive overview of the current corporate governance structure in Europe. Both of you uh, explained briefly now how much pain it was to get that data, but I think it's it's a huge finding and I also think it shows us that any reform that probably will be conducted in the future, won't have the same influence on this fragmented corporate governance structures within Europe. So it depends on the benchmark of the country that you are having. And then depending on that, you can measure an, an impact. So that's the first point. And the second point is that um, you attempted to quantitatively measure with a quasi-natural experiment um, yeah, t- to measure the, the influence with all the challenges that come along with such a methodology. But nevertheless, I, I really like uh, that you tried.
3: <laughs> Very good, Nicole. I think that's damned with that's fake a good praise, start. isn't it, that's Luis? It's a good start. <laughs> we'll have a good discussion.
2: No,
7: no, I, I like it. But certainly I, I have some 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 questions. <laughs> good.
2: Do you want to set out what those questions are?
7: Yeah, <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> so uh, you, you you said it already, Luis, that um, you were looking at Italian companies, but I was wondering why you are only uh, picking up 42. So there are 42 Italian companies matched to a huge control sample. And I was wondering, is there some selection bias? Why are these 42 companies considered the Italian companies and other ones not?
3: It's just the constituents of the Stock X six hundred index.
7: Yeah, but there they must. The ones but there must be more Italian companies that are subject to corporate governance reforms than forty-two. At least I would think.
6: Luis, I'll take that one. My name is Professor Ryan Williams, University Paris Dauphine PSL. We do two passes on Italian data, so the yeah. first two that are in the appendix is just the first difference in U.S. data and a first difference in Italian data. We've done the Italian study on all the listed Italian companies, just the first difference. So we get a very similar result. The coefficient is very large because if you go back to the 90s, the Italian data become very noisy. Um, There's a switch from the Lira to the Euro at that point. The index changes several times. So we get the same result. The coefficient is actually very large. We don't report it in the appendix for that reason. but I, I, So we, we have done it on the broader sample. For the experiment to match with the control group, that sample shrinks to where you get 42 of the, the 600 are Italian, the experimental group, and then the rest are the the control or the placebo group say it another way.
7: Okay, I, I got so, that you are doing robustness so, checks, yeah. and I trust that your results so, are robust, but still I was wondering why, because you highlight that you have over 40, and then I thought, how much more than 40, and then I found 42 in the report, sure. so I was a so, little bit so Nicole, skeptical why only 42. Yeah,
3: so, so just to be clear, so we, we do both all of the Italian okay. listed companies as one exercise, and then we do the quasi natural experiment. The reason why it is 42 is because we take all the cons- constituents of the stock 6 and an 8 okay. so that we've got a size, we match companies yeah, by yeah, size and by geography. It is the European index, it's a European index, and there are only 42 companies. That's w- there isn't a, any selection bias in there other than it is what is in the index. But we, we've also looked at it, all the Italian listed companies.
7: But what you just said, Luis, brings me to a second point. You said you matched your treated companies based on size and geography. Are these two groups of companies, so the treated companies, the Italian ones, and the non-treated companies that are similar or more or less equal, statistically at least, to size and geography, are they also similar to the Italian companies in terms of other company characteristics? Have you looked for that?
6: So we have the sample starts to shrink the more characteristics you match upon. It doesn't really matter, again, other than the concern about the 42 starts to become mm, even okay. smaller. Uh, what Louise showed is the parallel trends pre and post. So we do have whatever characteristics you want to match on. In terms of the dependent variable cost of equity, you have parallel trends pre-experiments and then the divergence post experiment. So at least to me, that was somewhat comforting in terms of the, the, the pre-experiment characteristics.
7: I think the pre-data is very short, you're having, but it's not your fault, but it, it yeah. is the way it is. So these cost of equity distribution in the pre-period, Three you years, can yeah. at least assume it was equal Three because years. it has to be equal, but you don't have a longer time frame.
6: Right and it, and again when we yep. do just the Italian that's absolutely correct and we look at just the Italian data yep. itself we have a slightly longer mm, time okay. it's just in the, the 90s the the Italian data become quite noisy is is our issue let me ask you another question Nicole um the context of this
2: report as Luis explained earlier was DG FISMA's consultation on corporate recor- corporate reporting quality and enforcement which includes audit quality what links do you see between strong Governance in this area and all equality.
7: Yeah, this this was one point. Uh, I also. I liked and I also would like to discuss with you because you, you motivated um, focusing on corporate governance also with, just as Andrew said, this potential link between corporate governance and audit quality and I'm perfectly fine with you audit quality is determined by many factors and also so-called context factors one of which is very likely corporate governance but then you state in, in your report um, you say that uh, audit quality is also dependent on the robust of governance and I would like to know what you exactly mean with robustness of governance because I think it's important for us if we can increase audit quality why are corporate governance what is exactly the driver within the corporate governance structure that leads to higher audit quality
3: so so first of all we, we're not looking at the the other pillars so and and, and I I completely agree that we one needs to reflect more on the on the question you, you you're asking, and and we haven't we haven't looked at that question. And just to be clear about that, we, the focus of, of what we are saying is we need to ensure that we internalize the externality in, within the corporation. This is the important point of it. This is why it really matters. Now, the audit quality is really important, and there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, you know, Xavier has written. Reports on the status of the audit market. So for for 20 years, um, you know, for in UK, for the European Commission, whatever, we've looked at that, and and there are a lot of reforms that are required and all that. But that I would see this as different from what we're talking about here. Is ensure that the right incentives within the corporation are in place. It is about ensuring that managers and investors interests are aligned. It's about those interests being aligned with societal uh, uh, objectives. So it's internalizing those externalities. And that's why these corporate governance reforms are, for me, absolutely essential for that. They're right at the heart of the trust that we have on the corporation. So I'm not saying there aren't uh, parallels. There are, and we need to think about those. But but I'm, I'm actually talking about these effects as just as internalizing the externality effects, if I can call it that way. I'm <laughs> not sure if I answered your question, but I hope I did.
7: I uh, referred to the statement that you were making within your report saying that looking on corporate governance has also the, the advantage that a more robust uh, governance leads to a higher audit quality. I, I got that, but what, what was my point was what is the more robust uh, governance that really drives Audit quality in the terms of increasing audit quality. So it's one of the conclusions you are drawing, oh, okay. drawing in your report. Sorry, and I wanted to I reflect, reflect not, on I that. I apologise.
3: Then I
2: did not no, answer Luis, your question. Luis, if you, you could just answer that, and then I'll, I'd like to move to Chiara just to give yeah yeah you answer sure that.
3: my, my, my the, the response is is, is <laughs> I think if we are internalising external and we've got the internal control systems in place and we've got the managerial the CFO, you know. <laughs> Signing those reports, if I may put it as, as bluntly as that, I think that will have an impact on audit quality. I think it will have an impact on the incentives you put on auditors. So I see that as mutually beneficial. Sorry. That, that's what we meant in the, in the report. Yeah, Can apologies that's I did what not I answer. referred to. Can
6: I just add a two-sentence anecdote? Um, I started my career in audit at PwC pre-Sarbanes-Oxley. And my God, did those audits go so much more smoothly after the internal control structure was set up and you had management and even the employees understanding their place in the, the corporate reporting system. It, it got so much easier. So that has nothing to do with our study, but personally I saw that mm-hmm. on the, the ground. So I think there's, there's a feedback loop between all of these pillars, but we only focus the academic study on, on one pillar. But I, I do think there's spillover effects. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ryan, Luis uh, and Nicole. I mean, academic evidence is important, but there's also room for personal experience as well in this debate. I'm going to turn to Chiara now. The report talks about the experience of the enhanced framework in Italy, and clearly you've got lots of experience in that area. What is your experience on how it operates practically in Italy? Do you see the benefits that Oxera described?
8: Uh, the report deals with uh, corporate governance framework in Europe as a fundamental peer- pillar uh, for corporate reporting. And well, I think that, uh, uh, let me uh, go back a little bit on the, uh, on the assumption, the theoretical assumption behind, which is uh, very important for an academic, which is that high quality of, of information improves the way financial market work and improves the, the, the allocation of resources, which is the main task of, of markets. And uh, the report provides critical evidence of such statement. And I was glad to see that ita- Italy was one of the tested jurisdiction. So why Italy? Why my country even considering that the other one was the US? Well, because a lot has changed in Italy over the last 25 uh, uh, years. A lot of change in the hard law, as it is called in the report. I mean, company law, uh, securities regulation and other regulation. And also a lot of terrain has been gained by corporate governance code. So uh, on the so-called soft law, as again, as it is called in the report. And similarly down in the US uh, there've been uh, some uh, you know scandal in the last 25 20 years that has prompted the attention the need to a very well balanced system of Corporate gov- governance, a balanced system, which means, let's say, a balanced system of uh, duty and responsibility uh, to improve the quality of uh, uh, financial and corporate reporting. So basically, a strong need to reforms in the 20 years that reforms on corporate governance on the idea that corporate governance is important for corporate reporting and corporate report- reporting is important to the market for a selection of the company in which investor may to address capital and investment, of course. So basically, uh, the point is that Italy, of course, uh, is a European country, uh, and we know that in Europe, we have assisted to a big trend of harmonization in law that has impacted a lot of fields, but we have to remember that uh, when we deal with uh, company law and corporate governance uh, we still have a lot of peculiarity and national characteristic in corporate governance so this is uh, a very important to look at the single reality of single countries I- if we want to do empirical research on corporate governance so this is the main i mean important finding of the of the uh, 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 not finding assumption uh, of the oxera report So, Italy has some peculiarities, so I go uh, straight to answer uh, um, Andrew's question. And for example, again, the reports say that, well, in the US, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act placed a lot of importance on the uh, Audit Committee. What about Italy? We have to discuss this, uh, um, looking at Italy, taking uh, in mind the specific features of the Italian corporate governance system. First. In Italy, we have a specific model of corporate governance, which is called and known uh, all around Europe as the Latin one, where we do not only have the board of directors composed of executive and non-executive directors, of course, but we also have a collegio sindacale, which is appointed by the shareholder. And traditionally, in the old Italian civil code, he had a search a task which was an ex-post monitoring role on the compliance of the law and the bylaws. But according to the reforms that has been studied by Oxera, a lot of change in this task given to the colleges in the sindacale. So. The first reform mentioned by the report is the uh, reform that is called by the Draghi reform, uh, taking the name from Mario Draghi and also called the Consolidated Law on Finance in Italy. This is a reform dealing with uh, a lot of topics, financial intermediation, takeover, public offer, but with corporate governance. And with respect to um, our interest today, this reform said well, in a listed corporation, the Collegio Sindacale also must have a role on the, let's say, monitoring of the overall structure of the organization of the company, as well as to an internal control system. So it m- must have a sort of a duty to look after the system of internal control, which is the main instrument that lead to good corporate reporting at the end of the story. Of course, then, there is also the important role of auditors. So this idea of having a body looking to the internal control system. And unfortunately, uh, we have there is no data available, as uh, has been said in the presentation, before 2003. So we do not know the impact of this first important reform in Italy uh, because this was 1998. Then in 2003, is also important because we had a general reform in Italy uh, dealing with all uh, companies in Italy, so not only the listed company. This was a reform that uh, had allowed all the companies in Italy to decide their uh, system, of corporate governance, so we we saw the introduction of the one-tier model, the Anglo-Saxon one, the two-tier model inspired by the German one. But still, in Italy, we have a widespread adoption of the Latin model. For example, um, according to the CONSOB Report 2000, 2041 Report on Corporate Governance, 2020 company adopted the traditional model with the colleges in the while four the uh, one-time model and one, uh, the 2 tire model. So basically, in Italy, we all have corporation, both listed and unlisted with the Collegio the Collegio Sindacale. So I go straight to the last reform that has been looked into by the REPO, which is the so-called reform that we we had uh, uh, after some uh, uh, financial scandal in Italy that is called as the law on savings adopted in 2005. So the last one, and then we have data to observe. And a lot of reform years. for example, it imposed on listed companies this late voting system for the election of both the board of directors and the Collegio sindacale We also have independent directors and we have a syndical which is appointed by the minorities and a lot of stress still on the quality of information, quality of uh, uh, reporting. So, Moreover, this reform, so uh, I'm looking into the 2005 reform, it assigned a responsibility in preparing the financial statement to a specific designated corporate officer who is required to certify together with the management director, among others, the adequacy of the internal control system. So in Italy, we have someone which is appointed to certify the adequacy of the control system. We have the colleges in the sindacale in charge to monitor the overall adequacy of the controlling system. And then, of course, we have then, the auditors. And last information that I want to, to give you is that the Collegio Sindacale is also considered the audit committee according to the uh, uh, directive on audit that has been adopted in 2010 in Italy. So basically, uh, in this first question, my, my point is that uh, what I have seen, I have seen a big and improving culture on corporate governance, a lot of, Date and an improvement uh, on the, the standard of corporate governance in Italy and the importance of not only on corporate reporting but on what is behind corporate, corporate reporting in a corporation, on the duty and responsibility on all, in all the actors uh, on the preparation of corporate reporting for the market.
2: Thanks, Chiara. I think you did an excellent job there, really explaining what the Italian model is. And just to pick out, I think a couple of things that you mentioned, which Auxera found and summarized in their report is these frameworks that they studied had two common elements one was about the responsibility of management and boards for the quality and effectiveness of internal controls and second element of personal responsibility there I thought you summed that up really well. the report makes other conclusions you know in terms of the benefits what what reflections do you have on, on, on that?
8: The experiment is really interesting. From my point of view, uh, it is called a quasi-natural experiment, uh, where uh, the Italian corporation are those that took uh, the medicine, basically, where the medicine was the uh, improvement in corporate governance. I told you three steps during the year, big steps with big reforms, and these were the medicines. And the result of the experiment uh, is the conclusion that the assumption that uh, I focus on the beginning is correct. Uh, improving in corporate governance uh, allowed, allows the market to work better and to identify the corporation that deserve capital where the cost of capital is less expensive. So basically this is the result, the empirical result uh, of OXERA, which means that uh, we can overturn something that was uh, the, uh, the Traditional uh, belief uh, about Italian corporation because if we look at the literature from the 90s to before, the, let's say subsequent ten years, um, basically the literature say that uh, Italian corporation they pays in the market the so called Italian discount. Italian discount was because the market. I believe that it was weak corporate governance, uh, difficult uh, uh, in understanding the quality of corporate governance, and this uh, was paid by the corporation in higher cost of capital. So with all the limit of the empirical research that are clearly stated in the report, I think that this conclusion may somehow change this, And at least it can address the point that corporate governance is really important uh, to have the market in a better condition to assess the quality of corporate reporting, which is the final result of the quality of the internal organisation of corporation and of the internal control system.
2: Thank you, Chiara. Um, let me turn to Carol. So, Carol you read a lot of studies like this. It's kind of your day job, uh, as well as producing uh, your own thought leadership and studies. What reflections have you got?
9: I mean, first, of all, if I see a report like this, I I wonder, I start with the question, what is corporate governance? I mean, I remember, let's say, having done a lot of work on that a long time ago, let's say, that the definition even on corporate governance is not kind of commonly agreed in Europe. Let's say, of course, there's a very, very wide definition, which is the way which companies are um, governed and controlled. But then you come already to the point, what is a company? And we know that in Europe, it's already very difficult to find the definition of a company. And that's for tax reasons. I think all the consultants know this very well. The the, the Big Four know this very well. And yeah, we have one-man companies, of course. uh, Do you have to speak about this in the context of one-man companies? But why do I say this? Because in Europe, and my comments are, of course, given in from a policy perspective, we always have this issue, what is the perimeter of Harmonization. And if you speak about the parameter of harmonization and the domain of corporate governance, you say what kind of laws are we talking of? So we're speaking about mostly company law. Uh, that's where reporting comes in, but in Europe we have harmonised mostly through securities law, company law. If we look back over the last 20-25 years, most uh, notable the takeover bid directive, the 13 company law directive, was notable for being extremely difficult. The Italians know everything about this because I think they had the presidency in 2004. If they managed to get this through, but it was a second chance, and even then, let's say that piece of regulation is seen to be plenty of uh, with plenty of loopholes or plenty of holes because it basically allows for opting in or opting out of the legislation. But then apart from company law, we have securities law. And in securities law, we have done a lot. And the commission is working extremely hard at the moment, let's say, to even do much more on a securities law. There is, for example, a proposal on the table on further harmonization of the prospectus regulation. Yeah, on company law, we made another proposal on insolvency law regulation. But what is my overall, I mean, these are the two fundamental domains of corporate governance harmonization. Company law has gone very difficult, and you have always extremely contested debates in Brussels if you want to harmonize company law, certainly with the Swedes and the Danes coming over very rapidly if you speak about shareholder rights and if you want to harmonized shareholder rights because they think their system works well. When you speak about securities law, we have done much more, made much more progress because member states on average had much less in place on securities law. There was a whole body of company law legislation in place in most member states for 100, 200 years. I think Swedish company law legislation is even five or 600 years old. I mean, a security law, there was much less. And that's why we have advanced much more. If you then see this in the context of an EU of 12, uh, later 15, later 20, 27 today, you see that... Newer member states have got less problems to accommodate. Of course, they had to essentially accommodate to the acquis, but also certainly states from Central and Eastern Europe had less of a body, certainly in the domain of securities law, but also company law, and could accommodate this much uh, more rapidly. But apart from company and securities law, there of course, everybody knows there is social labor law, taxation, environmental law. I mean, there are also different degrees of entrenchments of companies in society, different degrees of state ownership of companies, which made it extremely difficult to make assessments about this subject. Look at France, for example, state ownership of corporations. We know that France recently nationalized EDF. But also Renault is partially owned by the state in France. Look in Germany, where half of the assets of the banking system are still owned by the state, or by the state, or by the public. Meaning by the public, by the state ownership, not in public ownership in the sense of uh, let's say that the uh, owners or say that uh, there are shareholders with the with the public. No, it's the state which is an owner. So once you want to harmonise, you will have to. Many different groups will come up with with their own ideas, and which will make it it very difficult. On top of that, you have the whole debate about board structure, single and double board structure, which makes it also very difficult to harmonize. You have in Germany, but also in the Netherlands, and also in other states, but mostly in Germany. Employees represented on the board, formerly represented on the board, and um, yeah, you have then, for example, something which is in the domain of corporate reporting, very important, individual versus collective responsibility of board members to sign off on accounts. I don't know to what degree we have harmonized on this. I mean, I think there will certainly be people around the table who know much more about this than than I do. I mean, all these elements influence so much if you want to have an overall, a single view, what has been the impact of reforms? If you then look at what uh, Louis has done and and, uh, Ryan, what has been the impact of the reforms? Can you make abstraction of a few reforms and, forget about the others. So what kind of reforms are you looking at and what kind of sample of companies are you looking at to see that there is an impact on the cost of equity? And that I found, f- mean, very, very difficult. Of course, if I heard it, let's say it's mostly uh, directed towards listed corporations, but we know in Italy, if you look at Italy specifically, we have a very special form of corporate governance in Italy, pyramidal structures structure where sometimes families own very little shares, but basically control the entire company. Then to say what has been the impact of the reforms, I would say, would be very difficult. So um, my overall comments, so can you distinguish, as I said, between reforms and non-reforms? Can you clearly make abstraction if you say, look, corporate governance has to do with so many different things. Can you say, look, we look at these reforms alone, and that's the impact. So then you make abstraction, for example, of all the reforms which have been ongoing in the domain of social law, law labour law, taxation, etc., which will also have got their, their impact and which you probably will not see or will not look at specifically in this uh, result. So my overall view, let's say, is if I look at this and also see that the OECDs are around the table, my concern is that the EU certainly in this domain is trying to harmonise uh, probably a bit too much. I mean and. I think if I look at the OECD, and I was recently at another meeting which the OECD organized on the subject at the end of December, they have this soft law approach, this standard setting approach for corporate governance, which I think can be probably sometimes more useful than what the EU is engaged in, because what we need to have in the EU is a well-functioning system of mutual recognition because we cannot continue to harmonize all the time. And if we were further expand, yeah, Zelensky is here today in town, let's say one of the main issues on the debate is let's say let's uh, have a rapid accession negotiations with, with Ukraine, but then comes Moldova, and then comes the Western Balkans, we will be soon we'd be with 34 member states, which will make it even more difficult to, to harmonize. So what should we do? Try to have well-functioning system of mutual recognition. Think about the soft law approach which the OECD has been doing for the last thirty years, by the way, and which I think is also very useful. And not trying to harmonise everything all the time, but have some good principles which govern corporate governance.
2: Thank you, Carol. I also owe you a special thanks because you've you've pretty much answered the second question I was going to answer in the uh, <laughs> in the in those closing remarks. Louis,
3: do you want to come back on on a couple of the points that you yeah, made? But, um First of all, Carol, your observations are absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with anything that you say completely. In fact, I, I completely support all the the observations you're making around the complexity that is going on in here, the the many factors that are going on in here, the points around the harmonisation and and having actually good good principles. I really like that, Carol. I completely agree with that. I know we're going to discuss that in in the, in the second half, but I just I, I I want, however, <laughs> to make a really important point that I was hoping in my in my presentation. I think because of the role of a corporation in development, the fact that we trust the corporation in delivering profits that are truthful, and these are the two things that, in my view, are really at the heart of that. They are about having good uh, internal control systems this is about having the board signing what the producer's reports these are right at the heart these are not just sort of reforms like a list of 100 before these are right at the heart of what a corporation does and therefore yes you might you might say that it's difficult to disentangle all the effects but i would expect as the evidence actually in us shows and ask around that as i would expect the effect of these specific aspects of it, because they're so important that they have an economically meaningful uh, effect on on uh, and a positive one. The idea that we can just produce reports that are not of good quality, that is, that is just too bad for society. <laughs> we can't argue with that. So we can argue about whether it is 50 basis points or 150 basis points or 10 basis points or 200 basis. We can argue about that. But we cannot argue with the principle that if you've got big failures as a result of bad reports, if you've got companies making very large profits as a result of deteriorating natural capital, I mean... That is huge impact on the economy. So I wanted to be really clear about that. The U.S. evidence, however, is very useful because they they've actually tried to look at the specific changes in what it does to full cost of equity and and all that. So do you want to just very briefly, right? We we haven't quite covered as much of that in in
6: the report as yeah, much as it should. Carol, I completely relate to the issues with isolating a factor. I think in any research in social science will have some difficulty in this isolation. Um, This is why we tried to use the quasi-natural experiment. Uh, The idea, the gold standard is a double-blind experiment in medicine where I can randomly take half of you and give you a drug and the other half of you and give you a placebo. And that's what we try to replicate with the quasi-experiment in the sense that Italy gets the drug The non-italian firms get the placebo and then we see how they react after the treatment is given. What I found remarkable is the results we got from that experiment, the results from the single change in the U.S. lined up very closely with other studies in the U.S. at least eight or nine publications in accounting looking at Sarbanes-Oxley and cost of equity all landed within our range or higher. There are also some Statistical things we did that I want more people with like firm fixed effects and year fixed effects We controlled for the financial crisis. We did our best to control for other potentially um, Spurious factors. I'll say broadly. I tried to break the model many many different ways and we we kept coming back to the same number So I but I I agree with you that in social science It's very difficult to 100% say have I isolated this factor, but I think a, a circumstantial case all points in the same direction
2: Carol, I don't want to shortchange you just because we're behind time, but anything you want to respond to on on those points?
9: No, I just had another comment. Just if we compare the EU and US, we have to know, let's say, that there are plenty of corporations in the US of which we know nothing. And the perimeter of regulation in Europe is much larger than it is in the United States. And I always take the example of Bloomberg, Bloomberg, which is so much out on, on uh, say, the streets to say, look, we need to have disclosure, but there's no disclosure about a company like Bloomberg at all because it's private, ha- private hands. And there are many large corporations in the United States of which we have don't have the slightest idea what what they. Are. So, if we then have an overall framework in Europe and look at it, and Europe, it will be much more pervasive, not also to non listed corporations, and US, it will be listed only to the laws which are listed.
2: Very good. Thank you. Thank you both. Right. I'm going to turn last but not least to Gabriella. Gabriella, you've got a number of hats that you've worn over the years that, that relate to this. This topic. If you think about your time as a securities regulator, what what reflections do you have on on conclusions?
5: Um, And uh, yes, uh, I I might have uh, I may have some um, some memories to share about what I felt about uh, the framework, the existing framework uh, for corporate reporting and financial reporting. Actually, it was mentioned here, and the the report is based on that assumption that uh, corporate reporting is actually extremely important and has. uh, very economically, very meaningful, as uh, Louis said. For many reasons, because of the cost of capital, et cetera, I'm not going to repeat what the report says and what has already been mentioned here by so uh, um, relevant academics and, and uh, researchers. But uh, one thing uh, that is, has not, probably not been mentioned is the, uh, uh, the impact that the quality of uh, uh, corporate reporting has uh, on the trust, uh, on trust. Investors trust, stakeholders trust, etc., which is a, a critical piece of the well-functioning of the whole system—businesses, corporations, etc.—in addition to the uh, cost of capital. I think trust is uh, uh, extremely important. But as a former regulator and supervisor of a, a securities regulator, and auditor, regulator, so I have both divisions. I look at this uh, uh, European uh, Commission consultation and report uh, thinking that this is a very significant step. And this is a very significant step because the European Commission started rightly uh, enough thinking that if we have to work on the quality of corporate reporting, we have to think about corporate governance, uh, statutory auditor, audit and auditor supervision. Okay. This is fine because this is an integrated system. We cannot enhance, raise the quality of uh, financial information without going through these uh, three pieces of the, uh, or the three lines of defense. But I agree that corporate governance is actually the area that needs most attention. And this is so for two reasons, because as the report rightly mentions, this is a the regime is a patchwork. It's different from country to country. It's split between companies' law, corporate governance uh, principles, banking law, securities law, etc. So very difficult to uh, implement. Very difficult to understand. Not comparable, and very difficult to enforce. But uh, on top of that, of this uh, of this uh, reality. We have a a biased perspective, uh, which I think I understand why it happens, Uh, a biased perspective about the reasons why or the causes of corporate events and corporate scandals, namely involving bad quality information. Each time we have a problem, the question, the immediate question is, where was the auditor? This is the the immediate reaction. And why is it so? Because it's for everybody. it, It is very clear what are the duties of the auditors, what they should be doing, and it's much easier to uh, implement these rules, enforce, sue, etc. But we can't forget that before some corporate reporting or corporate information uh, gets subject to audit or assurance, it had to be prepared and reported before. And where, where were those people, those uh, preparers, those charged with governance? that were responsible for any problem that the auditor should have seen and should have reported etc so this takes a, a, a shift of uh, mindsets and uh, this takes allocating the responsibilities as they should be allocated. I'm not saying that auditors do not have responsibilities and as a former supervisor of auditors, I know which uh, responsibilities they have, but I also know that for regulators, and this is the question for regulators and supervisors, it is much easier to go uh, and sue or question the auditor's uh, uh, um, approach and uh, performance than The preparers and those charged with governors, boards, audit committees, supervisory boards, CFOs, chief risk officers, etc. And this is much easier because the regime does not help. Setting the responsibilities in a clear way and does not help enforcing these responsibilities. As the report uh, very well highlights, there is no clear allocation of responsibilities to individuals and to boards, audit committees, etc. And so, uh, making use of my former experience, what I can tell you is that a securities regulator has very clear responsibility uh, powers uh, with respect to, for instance, investment funds. Audit committees, boards, etc. We approve the composition of these uh, of these committees. We uh, look at them and ask them why haven't you done this and that? But we can't do the same for uh, issuers for listed companies because these powers do not exist. I'm not saying that they should exist. This is a very controversial thing. But I give you an example: fit and proper requirements, securities regulators oversee, uh, regulate, supervise the fit and proper uh, requirements of investment funds, investment uh, companies, all the others, but not issuers and listed companies, because these powers don't exist. This means that securities regulators have prudential powers over other entities, not over listed entities. And this means that the uh, uh, the, the responsibilities within listed firms with respect to financial reporting and non-financial reporting more recently are very diffuse. Now, what can we do in that respect? Uh, of course, uh, working on the corporate governance regimes uh, uh, is uh, it's extremely important and useful. And it's a bit surprising that after all we have been through a lot of other areas in corporate governance, I tell you one. Remunerations, diversity, etc., have been subject to clear uh, (laughs) uh, reinforcement, but not with what has to do with financial or corporate reporting. What can we do in that respect? Going uh, to back to the corporate governance regimes and see what's what's possible to be done there to make to allocate responsibilities in a clear white light, for instance, in Italy has already been done, but there is more than that. But because this is about uh, law and regulations and we have ethics beyond the law and this is where I am now, I can't leave my former regulator hat, but it's not that different because as a regulator, what I felt is that this moral suasion instruments that we really use with uh, issuers, with listed companies to make sure that some corporate governance rules are followed and that financial information, corporate uh, information is approached in a popo- appropriate way. But there is ethics beyond that. There is a matter of it, it, a culture of the company itself. And so where i am now and from uh, my uh, current perspective the ethics standards namely those standards set up by the, the by the Yesba for professional accountants are a very relevant uh, base for professionals to know how to deal with a significant number of problems that they face while they are preparing and reporting corporate information. I can tell you some uh, competence, what kind of competence they have to have, what kind of uh, mindset in challenging the information that is given to the preparers by the boards, what kind of duties do they have when they face uh, s- uh, relevant signs of undue conduct or fraud or corruption or whatever. If they can report, if they should report, if they should not to report. Conflicts of interest. How do they deal with their own conflicts of interest when preparing and reporting information? Oh, there is a, 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 a very relevant number, pressure, inducements, etc. A lot of ethical problems that may arise while preparing and reporting corporate information. That's uh, this. Preparers and those charged with governance must know how to deal with. And this is where the ethics standards come and provide, I think, a significant baseline for these professionals to approach this very extremely important, critical, important role, which is the preparation and reporting of corporate uh, information, how they should uh, address this problem. It is about create not only the the standards themselves and what they provide in terms of guidance on how to address some ethical dilemmas and problems, but it's more than that. It's the role of these people within the organization in making sure that they create the right culture, tone coming from the top, uh, preparers, educating uh, audit committees and boards challenging them, et cetera, making sure that the right culture within the, cult, the, the the company works as the very first line of defense against fraud, uh, et cetera.
2: Thank you, I think you made a strong case there for the importance of strong governance and corporate reporting for, for supervisors, but equally the importance of ethics as well in, in preparing high quality information. So I am going to try and do something really quickly, which is I'm going to take two questions or comments. If you could say your name and who you're uh, uh, the organization you're with, and I'll take them both together and ask the panel to quickly respond.
10: Uh, my name is Olivier Butelis, I'm the Chief Executive of Accounts of Europe. Okay, well, very quickly, uh, I would really like to commend uh, Sarah for the work you've done. Very impressive, I have to say. I tend to have a slightly more restrictive definition of corporate governance than Carol, uh, I believe, because for me, it's really about value creation, i.e. strategy and accountability. And I think that's what we should really be talking about. That's you know the core uh, of the system. And in this respect, I very much agree with what you've said, Gabriella, outlining the importance of mindset, culture, competencies, That is really the core engine of of better corporate governance. I I also agree with Carol actually, when he outlines the importance of harmonization. But every time we talk about harmonization, I think we've got two problems. People talk about cost. So I believe the next study you guys have to do at OXERA is about these positive externalities that you mentioned. I'd love to read this report. And the second thing is, Member states, member states claiming we're all different. Yeah, true, we're European, so you know we're all different. But uh, I think we really need to think about what these differences really are. And at Accountancy Europe, we've been doing a little bit of work also on corporate governance, looking at really you know, the different models across Europe. And again, if you take a higher perspective I think on the fundamentals we're all looking for the same thing. Where the differences are very often is around perceptions. I think you know we tend to think we're more different than we are, and we're probably more aligned when we, than we are because we are trying to achieve the same things. The differences are also in politics and in technicalities. But I think we need to think beyond this. You know, we've again, helicopters on our head and a war that may last longer than we would like uh, in Europe. We've also uh, a trend for climate that is around three degrees and not 1.5. And with, you know, this morning, the directors of Shell being sued personally for their climate strategy. I wonder whether you think that the internal control debate should be extended to non-financial information as it becomes to be seen as absolutely critical for the future of companies, their value creation, and also the planet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh,
2: right. So don't respond to that yet, panel. Uh, Justine, you had a question.
5: I just want to com- to complement what you, you mentioned, Olivier. And, and I think what is also important is to define what is the assurance within the organization. Because you mentioned rightfully uh, about the audit committee, you mentioned about the external auditor, but as a representative of the internal auditor, uh, I would like also to emphasize the need for what I call a kind of assurance chain, w- because there are many actors that can guarantee the quality of the report. And and we need to, to work more on that and on the collaboration and the way we can work together for the improvement of the of the reporting.
2: Thanks very much. Right. I'm just going to take the question with Josina and then I'll sum up and we'll just ask the panel to respond and then bring it to a close. Josina.
4: I'm Josina Kameling, head of regulatory outreach for the CFA Institute. Uh, I want to come in on Gabriella's point that there should be a a clearer, closer look at apportioning responsibility. And looking at different streams within a company, because we are moving to a stakeholder where we stakeholders have different interests. And I think one of the things at CFA Institute that we've been researching is looking at a portfolio approach to how organizations work. So, we've done research on the future of work, future of asset management, et cetera. But you can apply the same to, to companies. Looking at building in different responsibilities means also having different profiles of people. One of the things that keeps going wrong is that you have people who all have the same mindset working in a finance department. And I'll give you an example. I was a banker for 20 years. I was always put in as the odd bird in teams because I was a lawyer and um, a literature Linguist, etc but not uh, not an economist not a master of finance so my boss said i'm going to put you in because you're the odd one out you're going to challenge everything that is something that has been missing it's been something that's been missing whether it's in in if we look at the whole Basel framework for, for banks everybody started looking the same it's been missing in companies as you 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 choose always the same type of people well you you cannot move something forward that way especially when we are in a very diverse Diverse world that that we were before.
2: Thank you. Right, I'm going to ask for a very quick comments from the panel and bring it to close. We had a comment there from Olivier saying should we apply the same thinking to the preparation of non-financial information. Uh, Pascal um, talked about the relevance of assurance, internal assurance within the organisation, and where that features. And then Justina talked about stakeholders having different interests and what's the um, importance of diversity in all of this. That
3: there. I'll, I'll answer very quickly on the first two okay. points. Um, to Olivier's question great question absolutely I, I I see it essential you've got to be doing this at non-financial report and and the example I gave of two companies generating the same financial profit but doing very different things for society is very striking for me you, you, and and one you know I, I happen to do a lot of work and, and and see these things about how you know what it means to deploy different capitals, to improve on different capitals at the same time as having a certain profit. I see that in reality. So I see trust, but Gabriella mentions, uh, driven by the combination of the financial and non-financial reporting in a truthful way. The role of the internal auditor, absolutely essential in that, because it is about internalizing the externality. And then you've got the external auditor role all very well uh, uh, clarified. So I see this is as Alex Edmunds would say, growing the pie.
5: Uh, I'm not going to comment on the, all, all the questions. Of, uh, of course, internal uh, internal auditing is key, uh, as all the pieces are. This is a supply chain. And uh, what I was trying to say is that uh, the first part of the supply chain is being left in uh, uh, the, the shadow, while the <laughs> others are being highlighted, the ones that come after. And this is the, this balance between uh, the, the different pieces uh, over the supply, the corporate reporting supply chain that has to be balanced. As to the diversity, sustainability, non-financial reporting, and I put it all in the same basket. Of course, I couldn't say uh, differently. Everything that we are saying uh, here and discussing here is... uh, as relevant for uh, for non-financial information, I'll call it sustainability information. Let's use the words as it is uh, already for financial information. It will take twenty years until we get to a stable framework and situation. We have to be humble, but we have to be ambitious as well. But uh, uh, concerning your 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 question, Josine, about the diversity within the organisations, this is of course a very big challenge, a, a, a necessity, but also a challenge in many in many senses. And getting back to what I said about the importance of the ethics, the existing ethics standards for accountants which support preparers and those we charged with governance, we did the the company in preparing and uh, uh, reporting. There is one challenge that we will have to address at some point in time, which is uh, the following. Uh, We will have in the organizations, people who are professional accountants and non-professional accountants, subject to different standards and different norms. And this creates a problem. Of course, I'm not saying that there is a, a clear answer to that and a clear solution, What I'm saying is that, uh, as we know, in the financial regulation, everything is going to a direction which is let's regulate and supervise the activity, the service, and not uh, the the ones who are providing the services. And this poses a lot of challenges and questions for the future.
2: Thank you very much. I'm really sorry to have to bring this to a close. Um, Let me just quickly sum up. um, Fantastic discussion there. There's clearly some challenges of of the way that OXEA reached their conclusions and how they managed to isolate the results, but a general understanding that the direction of travel is certainly right. Wide importance about the importance of strong governance in this area, strong ethics, and getting corporate reporting quality right and, and the wider benefits to society of doing so. And then some skepticism about whether a harmonized approach across Europe is possible. I'm sure I've done a disservice to some, some points of view there, but um, let me um, bring it to a close. Let me thank Gabriella, Carol, Nicole in her absence, Luis, uh, Ryan and Chiara online. And if you could help me um, show our appreciation in the normal way.
0: Well, that's actually it for the first of our two episodes from Brussels. Don't forget Oxera would love to hear your thoughts on this topic so if you would like to contribute to the discussion you can do that on their agenda website by visiting oxera.com/latest Agenda, or you can comment on their LinkedIn and Twitter posts uh, where they have shared this podcast. If you have been inspired by what you've heard today and are interested in finding out more about working with the OXERA team, uh, please do get in touch via the website too. For more information, visit oxera.com slash careers. We'd also love for you to subscribe or follow this podcast, which you can do on your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a positive rating and review. And finally, if you would like to get in touch with OXERA about Agenda, and any of the points raised here today or in any of our previous episodes, uh, you can do that by emailing agenda at auxera.com. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.